Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with fear and rejoice in him with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Richard and I discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 119 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have arrived at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to take this chapter in two parts, but today we're going to talk about this beautiful section in which Paul insists that everything about Jesus Christ in the story of the New Testament is katatasgrafas. A beautiful expression, it means according to the scriptures. For Paul, the Gospels had not been written, and so when he says according to the scriptures, he's talking to what we call the Old Testament or Tanakh. These are the scriptures, the writings to the community that Paul would be in. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. And here, to stand is to stand for judgment, istimi. It could also be a reference to being made to stand in the way that God will make Jesus to stand in the resurrection. And when he says preached, let's not imagine that there is something separate that he's referring to that you and I as readers of the letters don't have access to and that the Corinthians somehow did because they were sitting around listening to him. It's talking about the gospel that he preached through his letters. By which also you are saved. And here the word save means literally to save, as in I just watched a video of Syrian Christians whose town was being bombed and there was no one to save them and they were in the church taking cover, singing hymns 
hoping to be saved from those attacking them. And here, Paul has been spending all this time upturning what we understand as power. Power is demonstrated through the single-minded service of other people. The salvation is what is received because it gives you the power to serve the will of God correctly. Whenever you hear the word save, I want you to stop thinking about yourself and what's going to happen to you and think about what the word saved or the expression save us means when you're hiding in your church on Palm Sunday taking cover from bombing raids and asking God for help. If you understand it this way, you can begin to stop being selfish in the way that you theologize about your spirituality. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The way that you're saved is if you hold fast. God can save us, and even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to you, O Nebuchadnezzar. This is what it means to stand fast to the word, and God's salvation does not necessarily come in making sure you don't die. Because if God's strength is only shown by making sure that none of us die, then God is powerless. There's something deeper that's going on, which is that God gives you the ability to stand fast to what true power is, which is standing fast to follow his will and serve the needy neighbor. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. It was something that was handed down to Paul through the writings of the Old Testament, that Christ died for our sins, kata tas grafas, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. So here Paul is setting up a framework that is repeated in the Gospels, and Mark especially, it's the heartbeat of Mark. The Son of Man will be handed over to sinners, he will suffer many things, he will be crucified, and on the third day he will be raised. Insofar as the risen Lord was raised by his Father by a reversal of the judgment of the human court and sent as one vindicated to judge the nations as the Messiah, it is not good news that he is appearing first to Cephas and then to the twelve, which represent the twelve tribes of Israel, which means the Messiah is coming and he's going to judge Peter first and then the rest of the tribes. This is a very forceful argument, and I like to stress this because the text stresses it and because our piety surrounding Easter does not stress it. Our piety surrounding Easter stresses happiness and relief and joy, but it's only happiness and relief and joy in Revelation if you're coming with Jesus as one of the martyrs. If you're not one of the martyrs, the jury is still out on whether or not the resurrection is good news for you. Understanding that there is a judgment that goes along with receiving this teaching, because he says, I delivered to you what I received. There's this chain of passing it from one to the next. But what's significant is what is the content of what is being passed along, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he had been raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And I'm going to emphasize that just like you did, because it's not that Christ died for our sins, that's great, and then people can go and talk about what that means, or what does it mean to be raised on the third day, what does that mean? No, it's according to the scriptures, because the only thing that could have happened 
historically is Christ died, but that he died for our sins, we can only understand that if we have the scriptures and can understand what it means to die for someone else's sins. What it means to be raised on the third day, interestingly enough, no one saw him raised. Well, look, the tomb is empty because the resurrection is the ultimate manifestation of the anti-idolatry school in scripture. Notice, they carve the tomb out of stone the way you carve a statue out of stone. But then the tomb is empty when you get there in Mark. In all of the Gospels, it's very powerful. There's nothing to see. There's nothing to grab. There's nothing to touch. All you have in Mark when you run to the tomb is what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians, that Jesus would be handed over to sinners, that he would suffer and die, and that on the third day he would be raised. You hear that at the beginning of Mark. You hear it all throughout Mark. And that's what you receive, paralamvano, when you arrive at the tomb in the Gospels. It's not enough to say, oh yeah, the Old Testament was predicting what was going to happen in the New Testament. Now we have the fulfillment of the prediction. We don't need to hear the Old Testament anymore, which some people think. In fact, we have to understand what the Old Testament is saying because it gives us the content of the New Testament. Not one iota will pass away from the Torah, Matthew tells us. I want to reiterate what you're saying, Richard, so that everyone hears it clearly. The prophets do not predict Jesus. Jesus conforms to the preaching of the prophets, which is the application of the Torah. Jesus submits to it, and that's why he is katatas grafas. And that's why the entire New Testament, in fulfillment of the Old Testament, or in continuation, it's not saying anything new, is telling you that you also have to submit. And the resurrection is is when the Lord comes to see who has submitted and who has not submitted. And if you submit, you will sound like Jesus when you speak, and you will look like Jesus when you walk on the path according to the instruction of God's wisdom. If Cephas tells you something that contradicts Scripture, it can't be the thing that happened because everything that happened was according to the Scriptures. You can always evaluate what people are saying in terms of what the Scriptures say. And this is how you are never fooled by Satan. This is the point of this beautiful passage in Deuteronomy that I always allude to that warns you if a wonder-working, miracle-working person comes to your town and works great signs and wonders and then doesn't submit to the teaching of the Torah and doesn't say what the Torah says, kick him out of your town. He's a problem. Don't listen to him. This is how Scripture makes it impossible for anyone to fool you. Because no matter what you see, Scripture is telling you, your eyes deceive you. Stick with the instruction and no one will be able to fool you. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. So what is striking here, if you think about this as judgment, the judgment against James, who was one of Paul's opponents, is not as severe as the judgment against Cephas. And remember, in the Gospels, it is Peter who is given the distinction of being the one who betrayed Jesus Christ, which is a betrayal of the one who carries God's Torah to the nations, which is a betrayal of Paul's teaching. So James, although he is an antagonist in the New Testament, he's not the chief antagonist Peter is. So he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now here, 
when Paul says the following, you're going to imagine that Paul is being humble, and I'm going to remind you what Richard and I said earlier in this series, that you have not been listening to the letter if you think that Paul is being humble in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. What he is saying to you, in a letter where he has shown you that hierarchy is not what you think it is, and power is not what you think it is. He is saying to you that he is the most important. He is the chief of the apostles, not Peter. Peter has to face the wrath of Jesus right up at the front. Paul puts himself at the bottom, but that means that Paul, who is not great in worldly terms, and who is not esteemed among those who are of repute in the church in Jerusalem, Paul, who is the least, is second only to Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians, who is the least of all. So Paul is bragging. And even when he talks about being a persecutor of the church, the prophets were the channel for God's persecution of Israel in the Old Testament. So don't believe your eyes, believe your ears. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. The emphasis here has to be placed on the grace because he shows that he was the most disloyal, pretending to be righteous. He was one who persecuted God's people. But the grace of God made him the apostle and the preacher of the gospel. The grace of God made his sin fruitful. And this is what Paul has been saying. All of you want to judge each other, and you are already judged. You are not let off the hook for your sins, but it doesn't matter because your sins are useful for God's instruction. All of your sins can be made into something useful by the grace of God. And here, Paul, who can sin better than any of us, is the greatest teacher. This is the contradiction that people struggle with. You can't say, well, Paul is a persecutor and he's a hypocrite, he can't teach us this way, or we won't listen to Paul until he repents. No, because the persecution itself was a word. The judgment here is so strong because his grace which was bestowed upon me was not found in vain. I think that's interesting because we know that Paul was correct because I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me, which means that when he received this grace to teach and to preach, he did it with everything he had, working harder than anyone else. This is the judgment that comes upon humanity. When given the grace, you're expected to then work according to it. You know, when you're given the means to do a job, if you do a bad job, you can't blame the tools anymore. It's only you who's doing the bad job. This is what Paul shows to be his power, his strength. He submits 100%, 100% to the will of God. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you trusted. And this is important. This is what I've been saying. It's Deuteronomy. Don't believe what you see. It doesn't matter what you see. You can't see the resurrection. You have to trust what God is saying in his instruction, which I am preaching to you, and you have to submit to it because it is according to the scriptures. Kata das grafas. I want to keep repeating it the way Paul does at the beginning of the letter so it sinks into our listeners' ears. 
whether it's Paul or all these other people who received the teaching before him, the order in which you receive the teaching is unimportant. It's the labor and the work you put into fulfilling God's will. And so Paul is emphasizing this. And this goes to Romans, just because the Jews received the teaching first, the Gentiles will prove to them that they're liars because they weren't working according to the scriptures. Paul is showing, I worked harder than them all, even though I received the teaching last. But it's not what time you receive the teaching. It's what do you do once you receive the teaching? Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You are looking for proof. You are testing God's word with your eyes instead of trusting God's word and submitting because Christ is preached to you as raised. So what's your issue? Are you rejecting what's being preached to you? The issue is trust in the instruction, not proof of miracles, the way I hear some people use this text. You are made to stand in the resurrection the way that God wants you to stand if you are a martyr with the martyred Christ as a reference unto instruction. If that's the case, if you are made to stand as a reference unto instruction, and you are not submitting to that very instruction, what are you talking about when you talk about the resurrection? Resurrection unto judgment. You're either going to be stood up as a reference in the resurrection, or you're going to stand for judgment in the resurrection. It's either a resurrection unto life, or a resurrection unto judgment. So please think about this when you're shouting Christ is risen next week. You may be shouting your own condemnation. Proceed with caution. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, which means that you're saying that what was preached to you, you reject it. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, which is what I just said. Your faith also is vain. So if you don't trust everything I'm saying, even that which you trust is useless because there's no middle ground. You either accept that this is the word of God or you reject it, but you can't go grocery shopping. You can't decide, oh, this part makes sense, this part doesn't make sense. Again, what is received is received according to the scriptures. If you aren't believing in the foundational teaching of what you've received, then what are you believing in? What are you putting your trust in? Your ability to discern, your ability to judge what is being taught to you. But we've already shown that that's not possible because when you do that, you end up with the vain wisdom of this world, which Paul has been preaching about all this time. Your own sensibility is not trustworthy. It has to always undergo and submit to correction. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So he's continuing to drive this point home. If you do not submit to what has been preached, you are voiding everything. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Not because when you submit to scripture, you're no longer a sinner, but when you submit to scripture, as a sinner, you have the hope of being led by Scripture and not being led around by your ego and your hormones, which lead you to sin. Your will, your heart lead to destruction. The will of God's teaching protects you and preserves you on the path towards the day 
of the resurrection. Oftentimes when people say sin, there's this folk etymology that it comes from the word for missing the mark, like an arrow, like there's a thing you're supposed to do and you don't quite do it correctly. I disagree with this etymology. I look at the Hebrew and the word pesha, which relates to rebellion. If we understand it according to rebellion, if Christ has not been raised, your belief, your trust is in emptiness, is vain, and you are yet in your rebellion. You are still in this state of mind that keeps making you think that you understand better and that you understand how things work. And so not believing in the one who gives life is the classic apostasy in the prophets. And look, I want to make this clear because I know how people hear this in Western culture. What they hear is, we follow this teaching because Jesus was raised and we're going to get something out of it. And so if he wasn't raised, what's the point? Paul is not saying if he wasn't raised, what's the point? That is not what he's saying. He's saying, you are not accepting the teaching as I delivered it to you, which I also received. And if you don't accept the teaching, you're wasting your time. It's a different statement. I want to repeat myself. Paul is not concerned with your reason for accepting the teaching. He's only concerned about whether or not you accept it or reject it. He's not presenting the resurrection as a reason for accepting the teaching. He is telling you that the resurrection is the teaching. And if you don't accept the teaching as it was delivered, you don't accept the teaching de facto. And that's a problem, because without the gospel, you can't live correctly. One of the main points of this letter is also the unity of the community. If there are people within the community who are saying, mm, you know, we believe some of what Paul's teaching, but not everything. Oh, the basic things that he's teaching. Yeah, you know, I, the jury's still out on that for me. This causes problems within the community for the way that people take care of each other. I mean, this is the Jenga piece that's going to hold the whole thing together. You aren't allowed to pick and choose at the cafeteria. You know, I like all the stuff, but the resurrection thing kind of seems strange. You say, well, you know, but this is what I received. This is the teaching, and it happened according to the scriptures. If you're going to reject this, you reject the whole kit and caboodle. And if you reject it, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And the great example to explain this verse is something you've said before, Richard. Namely, that when you go to a funeral and the gospel is not preached, you leave feeling sad because that person is really dead. They're not just dead or mostly dead, as they say in The Princess Bride. They are dead because the word of life was not preached. Paul is saying here in verse 18 that if you reject the teaching, what did the martyrs die for? If you reject the teaching, what does the death of Christ bear witness to? Whatever it's bearing witness to, it's non-functional for you, which means you are squandering the blood of the martyrs. And the community of faith, the household of Abraham, extends to the martyrs, beginning with Jesus Christ. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If it's all about you and all you care about is your life and if you really believe in your individualism and you don't care about those who died before you for your sake, for the sake of life and the sake of the teaching, and you don't care about those who come after, as the prophet David says, for the generation yet unborn. If you're just an egoistic North American who wants to have a nice long life and a comfortable retirement, you are most of all to be pitied. All of the martyrs, beginning with Jesus Christ and all the prophets, suffered and died 
and lost and were defeated and were humiliated and shamed as we hear in Paul's letter to the Hebrews so that the faith could be handed down to you. And now what are you going to do about it? Pick and choose which part of the faith you're interested in in the scriptures so that their sacrifice is squandered? It's a nice way of saying that the judgment of the resurrection is a judgment. And with all the martyrs behind you, the weight of that judgment is mightier and more fierce than it ever was. He is pressuring the church here. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He's been raised. He has been put in place as a judgment, which means everything you do is going to be measured by his sacrifice. He is bringing the first fruits and you are the fruit of his labor, as Paul always says about his disciples. Are you now, when Christ has been raised by the word of the Father in judgment, are you going to squander it? Are you going to waste the fruit? For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. In other words, in bringing the Torah to the nations and bringing the judgment of the Messiah from Mount Zion to the whole world, Jesus is undoing Adam's disobedience of the Torah in the garden. And here when I say Torah, obviously Adam is a character in the Torah. And the subject of the Torah is the Torah. So when Adam disobeyed the word of God in Genesis, he rejected God's teaching. And now Christ submits to it. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The way that Adam began on his road to his death, the first step was his rebellion. We were talking about this on Sunday with one of the parishioners about how the reaction that Adam had after he ate the fruit was that he was ashamed and that he and the woman realized they were naked. Now, was this because their eyes were opened by some magical property of the fruit? Or was it simply that disobedience naturally led to shame and the desire to hide from God and from his judgment and from his teaching. When one decides to be rebellious, one separates oneself from God and from the teaching. So the way that Adam began the trip towards death was through his rebellion. The way that that path was cleared in order to come back was through obedience. And Paul has been talking about his obedience all along in this chapter, obedience to what he was taught. Just like Adam, through his rebellion, felt shame and separation, so Christ is now becoming reunited with the teaching by following that teaching and submitting to the teaching and submitting to the will of his Father. You are not living for yourself if you are a slave in Abraham's household. Christ did not live for himself. Adam lived for himself and thus failed. Christ lived for the will of his father, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming, which is played out in the book of Revelation, this idea of the martyrs who come with the bridegroom. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, meaning that everyone and everything must find its proper place in obedience to the Torah in fulfillment of the will of the Father of Jesus. Any other conception of rule and authority and power are going to be demolished, 
so that the only ones that remain are those that are according to the scriptures. And that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians, to be clear. He takes the Roman household and he preserves the hierarchy, he preserves the authority and the power structure, but he replaces the batteries, so to speak. He puts a different source of power in the same structure. And this is what Paul is advocating for all of creation, that every institution, every household, every power structure, every rule, every authority would be supplanted with the rule of God's teaching so that no one would be self-righteous, so that no one would dare judge another, and so that all actions would be governed by God's wisdom. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the first enemies to be put under the feet of the Messiah in 1 Corinthians are the members of the body of the church in Roman Corinth. They are the enemies of Christ, and Paul has just conquered them by shaming them and putting them under the shame of the cross. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And here you have to understand death in a scriptural context, not in your psychological existential context in which you're afraid of passing away. If you're afraid of passing away, not everybody is. Here death is referring to the power that Satan wields in order to control you. It's the power that Caesar wields. It's the power that the head of a Roman household wields. It's a power that the enemies and the rulers wield, that Cephas and James wield. Because you place your trust in things that are passing away. And once someone understands that you want something material, they can control you. And Paul is teaching you not to want anything material, but to put your trust instead in things that cannot be seen or touched or grasped, hence the empty tomb. You can lay your hands on a pile of cash. You can lay your hands on a statue of Jesus. You cannot lay your hands on the wisdom of his instruction. You can even put your hands on the glory and praise of other people that, oh, you must be correct. You must be in the correct church. You must be the knowledgeable one, the wise one. But as we saw throughout this letter, that's exactly what divides the community. It's not the basis of the community. The basis of the community is love and service to others. And when one does this, and that is the only thing that one cares about, is love and sacrificing oneself to the God and Father of Jesus Christ, who gives us the teaching that we must serve our needy brother, then we have no more interest in our own longevity, only our ability to work hard today to serve others. And so death is not a problem anymore. Death is not a problem because all it means is that God who put me here so that I can serve other people no longer needs me to serve other people. The end. So that, Richard, as the hymn says correctly, we may call brothers even those that hate us. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet in fulfillment of the Psalter and of the prophets. If you submit to Jesus as the Messiah who is coming in power, which is how Paul has presented him, you no longer have to fear the other bullies as the Messiah who makes the king in Jerusalem tremble and his knees knock in Isaiah, not because of Ahaz, but because of the Christ. 
then there is hope for you because you can be set free from your fear of the power of Caesar. You have to choose between being afraid of Jesus and being afraid of the president who's dropping bombs on your country. That's the test. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. The test is, do you remain obedient? Adam was disobedient. Christ was obedient. They both ended in death, but Christ is the one who is resurrected in power according to the will of God. This makes all the difference. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all, meaning that even Jesus, who now is wielding the judgment of God's instruction and coming in power against the nations, even Jesus has to bow his head to God. Nobody gets off the hook. Nobody gets off the hook from submitting to the next person above them in the hierarchy. This is 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, the parish council does not gather to take a vote. In 1 Corinthians, we don't hear what the parishioners think. We don't hear what the priest thinks. In 1 Corinthians, everybody from the lowliest to the greatest bows to the person above them. They're either listening to the teaching or they're working for the needy neighbor. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.